This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to New Books and Genocide Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host today, Jeff Bachman, a senior lecturer at the American University School of International Service. Thank you all for listening. Today, I'll be talking to John Cox and Sarah Minslow about the edited volume they co-edited with Amal Khoury, titled Denial, the Final Stage of Genocide, published by Rutledge on September 22nd of this year. John and Sarah, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for being here. And uh, can you start us off by telling our listeners a little bit about yourselves? Yeah, sure. I guess, yeah, we'll go in alphabetical order. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> so I'll just say quickly, yeah, my name is John Cox, and I'm a professor at University of North Carolina in Charlotte, which has re- recently been rebranded, quote, Charlotte, unquote. And I'm, uh, I also direct our Center for Holocaust Genocide Human Rights Studies. I'm a historian by training. I got my PhD at uh, UNC Chapel Hill. And uh, about 15 years ago, and I've written a couple books, most recently um, a, a book called To Kill a People, Genocide in the 20th Century. And I was uh, honored to be part of your program, along with Adam Jones, about two or three years ago to talk about books that can can be used as textbooks. Mm-hmm. And I'm Sarah Minslow. I'm an assistant professor of children's and young adult literature at California State University in Los Angeles. But I was at UNC Charlotte until 2019. Um, I did my undergrad at Clemson University and studied English and psychology. And then I moved to Australia and did my PhD at the University of Newcastle. Um, And my supervisor, one of my supervisors was an Aboriginal woman. And so a lot of my research looked at post-colonial approaches. And um, we interrogated the ways in which Victorian nonsense authors used children's literature to critique uh, British imperialism. And that sort of led me into post-colonial approaches and human rights studies. So when I got to UNC Charlotte in 2011, John and I met up and I became a steering committee member for the Center for Holocaust, Genocide and Human Rights Studies and started teaching courses with English and global studies that had sort of a war and genocide and human rights focus. Thanks, John. Thanks, Sarah. Um, and we can talk a little bit about uh, the work you are doing uh, a little later on. Um, but in the in the the book denial, you dedicate the volume to a Holocaust survivor named Dr. Susan Chernyak Spatz. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about who uh, she is and her significance to Holocaust and genocide studies? Yeah, sure. I'll say a word or two, and and, and Sarah might quite possibly have a word or two, because remember, Sarah, that event we did for her at Davidson <laughs> a few years ago. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so yeah, Susan Chernak Spatz was born in 1922 in, in Vienna, and she lived in, which means, in other words, that she was 17 years old already by the time that World War, World War II started. And um, she grew up in Central Europe in Prague, Berlin, and Vienna, ended up in Trazienstadt, she survived one year in Theresienstadt and two years in Auschwitz, and then also a death march and a few days or weeks in Ravensbrück. Survived all that, and then um, eventually ended up in the United States. And she's really a pioneer of Holocaust studies and of also, especially of literature and German language in relation to Holocaust studies. She earned a PhD working with Ruth Kluger. In uh, I think it was 1972 when Susan finished her PhD at University of Kansas. And then she came out to UNC Charlotte 
And so um, by this point, she's about 50 years old. But if you knew Susan, you would know that I was still very young for her. And she uh, she taught for more than 25 years, or actually more than 30 years <laughs> at UNC Charlotte. And she really established our Center for Holocaust Justice and Human Rights Studies. And um, I think probably people who listen to this podcast have, have a pretty good sense that Holocaust studies hasn't always existed. And then in the 50s and 60s, there were not college classes taught on this topic. And well into the 70s and 80s, there were not classes taught on this. And so Susan was a real pioneer, both in research and in teaching of uh, the Holocaust and of other genocides. She was also a pioneer in placing the Holocaust into a, a broader spectrum of crimes against humanity, racism, and genocide. Oh, and she left us two, uh, just about two years ago. So kind of as we were getting underway with this book, uh, she, she left our world in November of two years ago. So we thought it was appropriate to dedicate it to her. Thanks, John. Sarah, did you, uh, did you want to add a, a few words? Um, no, I think John covered it. She, I, I would just say she was always very willing to speak with students and, um, they really responded well to her. She had a great personality and she was sort of a no nonsense mm -hmm. um, lady. Uh, so she was highly respected. And I thought when John suggested that dedication, Amal and I said, absolutely, that's perfect. Uh, hey, I'll just add, she was no nonsense. And, you know, <laughs> sometimes <laughs> she would bust me down for mispronouncing things in French or German <laughs> so, or English. <laughs> so, and uh, but uh, it, it was a reminder, uh, just in more general terms, sometimes when we see older people, we think, oh, they've always been old. It's like, no, they haven't always been old, <laughs> you know. And, and Susan was part of a really vibrant artistic scene in, 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 in Prague and Berlin um, in the late 30s. She was good friends with a guy named Gideon Klein, who's a really brilliant musician, pianist and composer, who was among the many uh, artists who died in Theresienstadt. So, uh, so anyway, that's just something else to keep in mind. I mean, unfortunately, we're losing survivors of the Holocaust every day and survivors of other genocides too every day. And, um, but it's worthwhile to try to think of them as real individual human beings instead of just as survivors. Many survivors of genocides don't even like that term. You know, mm -hmm. I've got a couple of good friends from Rwanda who don't even tell people they're from Rwanda. They just say they're from Eastern Africa because they know that very few Americans know anything, you know, <laughs> that most Americans might say, oh, you must be from, from, from Nigeria. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so, uh, um, but that people I... aren't just survivors, <laughs> that everyone's a very multifaceted human being and that, um, and that they shouldn't be reduced to that, you know, right, right. Or, or just defined by that, that is. Yeah, I was, I was thinking the same thing. Just um, they don't want their entire identity to be tied into, and you know, some, um, you know, but not everyone wants that uh, to be their entire sort of, you know, how they're defined. So yeah, uh, and it's really interesting the uh, what you mentioned about um, you know Shernak Shabbat doing both um, Holocaust studies, but also um, other you know essentially early comparative studies uh, since. You know, the comparative genocide studies movement is in a lot of ways tied to around the 80s. So um, that that was happening before is really important. Um, yeah. So, uh, you know, typically I, I like to ask the authors uh, that interview how they came to write their books as, as to the editors of Denial. Uh, you know, it's a little different situation, um, but there is still a, a source for your book. And it seems to be the uh, the 2019 Center for Holocaust, Genocide and Human Rights Studies Conference on Genocide Denial. Uh, can you talk about how or the impetus for this conference, um, why that theme at that time, and how it led to an edited volume on the subject? Sure. We, um, the Center for Holocaust, Genocide, and Human Rights Studies at UNC Charlotte was pretty new, just getting started. And there were some small grants available through the Chancellor's Office to address diversity initiatives. Um, and so we decided it was a good opportunity for us to try to do something. So along with our colleagues, Ella and Emic, we applied for the grant and got it. And so we were able to host this international conference on genocide denial. And we all came up with the theme because 
well, A, it was something we had noticed in our work in genocide studies that there was a gap on research and writing. And we had also really noticed it was during Trump's administration and we had genuine concerns about the different forms of denial, including things like fake news and outright big lies. Um, and of course the relationship with Turkey and their unwillingness to acknowledge the Armenian genocide. And so we felt like the timing was right. And we put out a call and we got overwhelming response, which was awesome from a lot of international scholars. And some of them were at, weren't even able to come. We had to deal with, especially a lot of scholars from Nigeria, their, their visas were denied. And John spent a lot of time trying to negotiate that, but it was frustrating. But we did have a really great conference. And at the conference, we put out a call for submissions for the volume. And again, we probably got three times more than we could fit into the book. So trying to work through that and, and we, we created sort of some guidelines and a rubric for what we wanted to include. Um, but that's, that's sort of how it all came together initially. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then also, uh, yeah, and this was our first big conference. We're going to try to organize another big conference for sometime next year uh, based around the themes that were raised by the pamphlet called We Ch Well, it's not really a pamphlet. It's a book really called We Charge Genocide that was produced 70 years ago by William Patterson and uh, people like Du Bois and Paul Robeson were involved in that. But um, also we had detected you know, Sarah and I and other people on our the steering committee of our Holocaust and Genocide Study Center. You know, we should be able to just say Genocide Study Center, actually. <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> in our Genocide and Human Rights Study Center, that there was really a, a dearth of research and writing about genocide denial. You know, there's plenty of writing about Holocaust denial and of our Armenian genocide denial. But not so, not much at all, really. Frankly, about a, a more comparative analysis or looking into other regions, other episodes that have been systematically denied. So, um, and so we were really delighted to get the res response that we did, and uh, which I think turned into a book that definitely goes very far beyond those those two most well known examples of den of denial. It certainly does. Um, and uh, one thing I just wanted to to ask you, and then we can get into um, to a question about the, the you know what was included. But um, were some of the papers that did not end up getting included? Did they focus on the law? Because that was something you know. I'm doing a little bit of research on genocide and denial myself right now, um, and a lot of the stuff that I'm reading, specifically about genocide denial, um, takes a, a very legalistic approach. And um, you know, the essays in in your book. Um, uh, do not. And so I was, I was curious if, uh, and I appreciate that. Um, have, were some of the papers more focused on the law and you didn't want the edited volume to be about laws against or, uh, denial and free speech and that whole debate? I will say, yes, there were several papers presented at the conference that did address the legality of denial and, but a lot of the discourse at the conference was about interrogating the very definition, like Lemkin's definition of genocide, um, and looking at how people are able to skirt around it or how it does leave gaps. And so while there was emphasis on, especially like Europe passing different laws about what can and cannot be said and people actually being charged and tried for denial, and then international leaders who are vocal about denial of particular genocides. There were papers on those. And there weren't many of those that actually submitted for submission in a volume. I remember reaching out to one person in particular and saying, you, you gave a really good overview of the laws that have passed in recent years pertaining to genocide denial. Would you be interested in sort of including that in our volume? And he he didn't want to, um, which was fine. But then we had a conversation and partly we wanted to leave it open to interpretation and partly we wanted to purposefully look at other forms of denial and their larger implications. And when you restrict it to legality, you're you're missing chunks 
of things that hadn't really been explored before. Yeah, exactly. And I think in general, our approach with the conference and then with the subsequent book was to not be tied down by the more narrow and uh, legalistic interpretations of the 1948 UN definition of genocide. And so as we didn't want to be tied down by that, such as, for example, overly narrow interpretations of the concept of intent. And also, uh, of course, there's obviously the big problem in the 1948 definition about there are four groups that are included, leaving out so many other groups and so on. So while we didn't want to be like, you know, imprisoned by that 1948 UN definition, so therefore we also really wanted to stretch out I mean, within reason, you know, on uh, how we dealt with the issues of denial. But also that just as with the uh, definitions of genocide, there are very thin boundaries between a genocide and and crimes against humanities, war crimes, atrocities, and so on. So just in a very parallel fashion, there's, uh, you know, we shouldn't make big distinctions between, for example, denial of uh, U.S. crimes in Vietnam 45, 50 years ago and denial of the Holocaust, frankly, because if you can deny, if you can just close your ears and your heart and your heart, you know, and your uh, and be completely ignorant and just and wallow in your indifference to U.S. war crimes in Vietnam or elsewhere then that's a very, very short step to being a Holocaust denier or a denier of other uh, genocides. Well, that uh, definitely connects to uh, another question I had for you in some ways. Um, You know, I I assume the conference participation, both among the presenters and audience, was largely constructive. uh, But were there also times where uh, things got contentious and uh, or were there certain topics that were more contentious than, than others? And did any of these make it into the volume? I would say the participation at the conference was great. And there were so many different avenues. And then we had a lot of even like undergraduate students presented all the way through scholars like Henry Terrio and Adam Jones. But um, the only one panel that cause was potentially contentious was the one on um, Palestine, Israel. and. It wasn't like an argument. It was simply a really good discussion about how we classify things that, you know, the ongoing tension and and violence occurring there. Um, There were some really passionate speakers, especially in relation to Bosnia and the outright denial. Um, And as Hikmet talks about in his chapter, the triumphalism, you know, the celebration of genocide of Bosniaks. So I would say they were more like passionate and led to really productive discussions rather than contentious. Um, so yeah, but then in terms of what made it into the volume, we really wanted to have people who were well-established scholars, and then we really wanted to provide space for emerging scholars as well. So there are pe- authors in there who haven't really published broadly who are in or just finishing their graduate programs, but who bring new insights and potentially future directions for where genocide studies is going. And that was really important to us. Um, And then I really wanted to ensure that there there were chapters about indigenous genocide, for instance, and the lasting effects of settler colonialism. Um, And new takes on even like the Armenian genocide so that we weren't, reiterating things that had already been said. But in terms of contention, I don't really think, I feel like the conference itself was really collegial and productive. And and a lot of people who cared deeply about the things they were talking about, but no real um, animosity arose during it, which was good. Yeah, no, I think that's absolutely right. You know, yeah, there was a fight that broke out one night at the bar between fans of Real Madrid and fans of the Barcelona soccer team. But, uh, but, uh, that, but you know, that's even more intractable than the Palestine-Israel conflict. 
<laughs> were these were these also conference participants? Well, yeah, at least one of them. Yeah, speaking as my uh, well, I'm a former Barcelona fan until like, until the last year or two. <laughs> but um, but yeah, but even and actually, even uh, someone who presented a strong paper. Following along some arguments made by Martin Shaw a few years ago and by others that one could place definitely the oppression and dispossession and uh, of the Palestinian people within the genocide framework, that didn't even spark like huge, like the kind of actually <laughs> the kind of strife I've seen at a couple other uh, you know, genocide studies conferences. Mm-hmm. Uh, instead, I think people understood that it was reasonable to talk about that if we understand genocide as an effort to to disperse a people, to destroy a people's identity, um, to make life so miserable for a people that they must flee their homeland that gives them a sense of, uh, you know, community and co- collectivity and so on. So even that was really pretty easy, you know, was not uh, definitely not as contentious as I've seen it in some other conferences. And we also we're real proud that we in our conference was able to introduce some really powerful themes that are underexplored and that are really urgent, such as genocidal violence against trans people, trans women in particular, but other trans people and queer people in various parts of the world. And uh, which I think, again, and, so, you know, sometimes when people use the ad, the adjective genocidal, sometimes that can be a way to be wishy-washy and to get around something. But I think it can also be a u- useful term to use the term genocidal as an adjective, you know, as an adjective. Um, and that definitely in places like Chechnya and many other places, there are c- centralized, organized attempts to make trans people disappear as a community or as a uh, people w- with an identity. And you can do that through a combination of means, making life miserable, le- legally persecuting the hell out of people driving people off and compelling people to, uh, to to abandon their identity, at least in public. And so anyway, I was really glad that uh, uh, a, a young scholar, we're also very proud of the fact that we have some established scholars like Adam and Adam Jones and Henry, and then some up and coming people like Haley Marie Brown, who wrote a brilliant chapter about genocidal violence and attempts to erase the identity of trans of trans women and Sarah thanks for mentioning Hikmet because I'm well we're, we're all proud of all the chapters but um but uh Hikmet Kartich from uh Sarajevo he's helped to promote this concept of triumphalism something that's even a little bit more odious and repulsive than denial which mm-hmm. is to celebrate and re- revel you know in your um in your crimes. And I saw that firsthand. I spent a couple of months in Bosnia t- two years ago, and it was probably the most powerful experience I've had more so even than I've visited. I've taken students to Auschwitz and interviewed and gone to Rwanda, interviewed people there and, and so on. But um, it was really un- almost unbearably disturbing to go through these regions of Eastern Bosnia, sites of massive genocidal violence, and uh, ethnic cleansing, so to speak, and then to see these symbols and uh, manifestations of triumphalism. And thanks, John. Thanks, Sarah. Did did you all present at the conference as well? And um, you know, a, a related question, um, you know, because edited volumes often have contributions from the editors. Um, did you consider contributing a, a chapter or chapters to the volume uh, as well, in addition to the introduction? Uh, what went into those decisions? Hey, I, I can say I thought I, I tried to write a chapter about the U.S. war in Vietnam. And like a lot of us, especially in the last year and a half during the pandemic, like a lot of us, I just didn't finish something that I set out to do. Because that, that's one thing I was really hoping we'd get some proposals. The way that we wrote our call for papers, we were definitely really inviting people. And we really succeeded in getting contributions from far beyond the two or three most well-known examples of genocide denial. But I was kind of hoping we'd get something about the U.S. war in Vietnam, and uh, which, again, whether, like with a lot of things, there's, it, it can certainly be debated if it fits into 
the most standard definitions of genocide, but it should just be definitely, it's really important for Americans, U.S. citizens, to have some knowledge and to confront what was done in their name. And that's not confronted. That's completely denied. Ken Burns, his new series on Muhammad Ali is really great. I, I just watched it last week and really enjoyed it. I thought it was really well done. And, uh, but you know, Ken Burns is a cool guy, liberal, progressive kind of his, you know, public historian. His, the series he, 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 he did with his colleague Novak uh, on Vietnam five or six years ago, it still perpetuated ideas about that it was a, a mistake. Um, it was a war begun by good-hearted people, and then it went awry. It was a quagmire. The term quagmire implies that you're ac- accidentally walking into uh, into quicksand, you know, rather than bombing the hell out of a country, attacking a country, killing more than 10% of its population, destroying its land, et cetera, et cetera. So that was so well. Anyway, I'm going on a bit. <laughs> Maybe I should just make a transcript of what I just said and turn it into an article. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> but that was one thing that was we were going to contribute that didn't happen. So I'm trying to turn that into a uh, journal article. Okay. And actually, if Dirk Moses is out there listening, I'd like to submit it. <laughs> I'll submit it to the Journal of Genocide Research uh, first of all. <laughs> And I would say we, those of us on the team that plan the conference, we have such an, a large number of submissions that we didn't even feel inclined to present. But we didn't have to take up space. Um, we left those spaces for other people. And personally, I was working on two other book chapters um, more closely related to children's literature at the time. And so I was very interested in editing the volume because I hadn't done that before, but I love editing. I'm a, I'm an English major and I just love editing. So I learned a lot from that process too. Um, so I don't think it ever really occurred to us to try to write chapters. And when John said he might write something on Vietnam, that was cool. Um, but I think the book turned out exactly how it was supposed to. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't know why I even had to bring that up. <laughs> well, between your mentioning of uh you know, John, your your paper now uh that you're working on on Vietnam. Uh oh it's gonna be a book actually. Okay. <laughs> It'll be probably like a three volume book. Uh Sarah, your love of editing um and so on. I, and I, you know, I previously mentioned that I'm doing a little research on denial now, um, and I'm doing this research for an edited volume, which Sarah, I'd be happy to let you edit for me, called "Genocide: The Path Ahead." Uh, and I've asked contributors to answer some forward-looking questions about the concept of genocide and the forms genocide may take in the future. Um, nonetheless, my contribution to the volume will be on the importance of the acknowledgement of historical cases of genocide and mass atrocities for the future of prevention essentially looking forward in order to move forward, looking backward, excuse me, in order to move forward. Um, you know, I, and John, you mentioned Dirk Moses, uh, his new book on the problems of genocide is in some ways part of the framework that I'm seeking to use uh, in terms of international criminal hierarchy by connecting it to den- denial through silence and omission. Um, and at least a couple of your volumes contributors pointed out that some cases of genocide are so routinely omitted from recognition that a denial apparatus is unnecessary and so do you have any thoughts on how this is possible? Uh, who needs to, part, to, to participate in denial for this to be feasible? Uh, what responsibility, this is a bunch of questions, but what responsibility do <laughs> citizens of states of denial have? And finally, uh, related to Vietnam, uh, of course, but other uh, states as well uh, that have uh, histories that involve things like um, crimes committed in Vietnam. Do you think the populations of states that have these quote unquote founding myths are more susceptible to this sort of per- per- perpetual denialism. So, John, can I start on this point? Uh, yeah, please. Oh, I was just gonna. I was just gonna answer yes to his last question. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah. Short um, answer. Yeah. So I think a, a lot. I've been I've been working a lot this year, and I work with teachers in the K through twelve sector. And more and more states are passing laws requiring Holocaust and genocide education. So last year, I worked with teachers in Oregon because they passed a law requiring it in 2019. And I do think that educating people um, from a young age about 
the historical, um, they're not mistakes, there were some mistakes, but you know, the having to reckon with our own past and how does a country come to terms with um, things that have been done, such as the genocide of indigenous people, such as the slave trade here in America, such as the crimes in Vietnam, and balance that with a healthy level of patriotism. Like I'm proud to be an American. However, I need to also acknowledge where America has done wrong and notice and pay attention to the lasting legacies of genocide and how it transforms the culture to, to create <clears throat> these ongoing policies and not just policies, but also just the society and those dominant ideologies that continue to perpetuate denial in some form. I mean, particularly for in indigenous communities. Um, and so recently the debates about, you know, the 1619 project and Trump administration's 1776 report where they just try to whitewash history and call slaves indentured servants and talk about how good slave masters were. And they wanted that to be part of the national curriculum. And for those of us who know, we're like, absolutely not. This is so far from reality. And it just continues to perpetuate an ignorance where we sweep things under the rug and we don't confront historical atrocities and we don't acknowledge them. And if you don't acknowledge them, you can't have reconciliation. You can't have healing. And so for me, a big part of it is educating other people, educating young people to understand because I was in grad school before I even really learned about the Armenian genocide. And I was like, what the hell is this? Why did nobody tell me this? And now looking back at the gaps in education, I feel like a big part of our work to combat genocide denial is to educate people about, about historical genocides. Um, so I think that that was really important to include um, lesser known genocides and even things you know like the chapter on the netherlands and on haiti where the commemoration or the memorialization of things are just ignored and yet we do that here too and so i really appreciate michelle stanley's chapter on looking at you know missing and murdered indigenous women and girls like that's a huge problem and people just pretend that it doesn't exist or don't even know that it exists and i think it's easier to pretend it doesn't exist or to look away when you have no context for the historical legacies that it comes from. Um, yeah, so that's my take on that. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hey, I, I, I'll, just, I don't, I'll just amplify one thing Sarah said, with, uh, which is just about, well, I, I shouldn't even amplify because everything you just said was really brilliant, Sarah. And uh, I really like that I'd yeah, <laughs> so I'm not going to start mansplaining. <laughs> but uh, the thing about uh, transforming that you transform your culture when you deny reality and deny your own past and your own crimes instead of confronting them. And, um, you know, really, it has the effect of poisoning your soul, either as an individual or as a society, when you refuse to look in the mirror and face what the hell you've been doing, you know. So anyway, um, but I'm also glad, though, that our book does also challenge the genocide studies field to look at things that have been not sufficiently looked at, you know, and uh, Sarah mentioned a number of other chapters that are really important. And um, I'll say one thing again to give a shout out to, to Haley Brown for her chapter on, on gender. It's called Gendercide and the Destruction of the Transgender Body. And the way, and to quote just real quickly, additionally, the experiences of transgender women are absent from contemporary understandings of, uh, understandings of genocide. This is largely a consequence of the dearth of research into transgender people within the field of genocide studies. 
And then she concludes her chapter with really a clarion call for us to look more deeply at that. So uh, anyway, yeah, we definitely hope that that's one thing, among other things, that our book accomplishes is to challenge our field to look more closely at a number of things, you know, um, and to tie things together in a comparative framework. And I, I think it does that. And I think, uh, and maybe this is just because my own, um, you know, sort of personal identity as someone who's trying to contribute to what, you know, Dirk and, and Alex Hinton uh, call critical genocide studies. I think your book uh, makes a contribution as well um, by, uh, I think, Alex's uh, essay on critical genocide says you know, something along the lines of, uh, you know, shining a, a light on the blind spots uh, and the biases that are inherent in some ways to the study of genocide. So, um, and, you know, I would add, in addition to the chapters you've already mentioned, I would add the Haiti chapter, uh, you know, to that as well. So, um, but let's, uh, let's take a, a little bit of a step back because we've gotten kind of into this, but we haven't really even discussed the word, the word denial itself. And, you know, because denial is the keyword for your volume, um, we should spend a few minutes on it. Uh, some of our listeners might be most familiar with denial as meaning the rejection of information, including established facts that do not correspond with their preferred understanding or narrative. Can you talk about the definition that was used in your volume? And I know different author authors use different uh, approaches, but um, I recall in the introduction there being um, at least a um, you know, a, a, uh, a definition of, of denial that was, that was, uh, discussed. Um, can you also talk about the different forms denial can take and the different strategies of denial that have been employed? Um, sure. And, and John, like in the introduction does talk about denial and how it has been defined, but I think it was a conscious choice for us to purposefully not define denial too narrowly so that we could encompass and include things that may typically not stand out as forms of denial. Um, and so a lot of the strategies we looked at, like I think we haven't mentioned Kirsten Dick's chapter on the Holodomor and sort of commemorations of that. And she talks about living in or being in Ukraine and just the, the tension between people acknowledging the Holocaust and sort of privileging it. And therefore, it feels like the denial of the atrocities that happened to Ukrainian people who weren't as affected by the Holocaust, but who were part of the famine. And so I think some forms of denial are about these hierarchies that you only have space for certain genocides and they take precedent over others. Um, I think a lot of it is the problem with the narrow definition of genocide itself. And so why does it matter if if we talk about genocide with a big G or a little G? And like John mentioned, using genocidal as an adjective, that it's a genocidal intent or um, it's also important because Dirk in his book talks about how, you know, it's a crime of identity and about narrowing spaces and taking away spaces for people to exist. And so we see that across history and all of its different, you know, everywhere. But I think not talking about certain um, atrocities, not teaching, like purposefully excluding them from curriculums, but also from public discourse and commemorations. The settler colonial policies that Michelle Stanley talks about, especially with the federal laws around tribal recognition, even um, how a tribe can't be federally recognized if they haven't resided on their their land for a hundred years without any breaks. But if they were pushed off of their land, then of course they haven't been there for you know without any breaks. And so just these tiny things that contribute to ongoing denial that I wasn't aware of until we started working on this volume. And then obviously just outright denial. Um, and then the triumphal, like where there's actually these celebrations that John talked about that Hickman writes about, which is, you know, really hard to even comprehend how people are just celebrating how much life they were able to take. Um, so I think we saw denial in a lot of different forms pop up because we didn't have a rigid definition of it. And that also allowed us to include a lot of interdisciplinary um, chapters. So 
Tadayevsky's chapter, um, no, Margarita's chapter on, you know, music as a way to combat denial. Um, and then we have the chapter on Haiti, which is actually from a sociologic anthropological ethnographic study, um, which, you know, doesn't always have the same weight as a historical study, but I think it adds something interesting to the volume. So we saw denial in a lot of different forms. Um, and I think that was on purpose. Mm -hmm. John may not feel the same. <laughs> oh, well, <laughs> I feel exactly the same. I'm just sitting here thinking, I'm glad you're giving this great answer because I've just been sitting back. And <laughs> so, no, I, I agree with everything that Sarah just said, especially that there's a, uh, well, <laughs> obviously, but also that there's a, um, yeah, our, I don't know if flexibility is the right word, but our op kind of open-mindedness about defining genocide also, uh, you know, shaped the book that, um, that again, we wanted to be broad because the dynamics are the same really between genocide denial and denial of other um, historic, you know, realities <laughs> and so on. So we wanted to take it in that direction a bit. And I, I think we succeeded definitely. I think so too. Uh, you know, I have an edited volume on cultural genocide and I include also in the introduction uh, a definition of cultural genocide, but it's, it's open enough to allow for all the different types of manifestations, cultural genocide or attacks on cultural existence uh, might take. And I, I think you all did uh, you know, a similar thing with how you define denial, because as your book shows, denial also takes uh, many different forms and is uh, employed in different ways for different outcomes or different objectives, I suppose. Um, so I, I did want to bring us to the the sub uh, the subtitle of your book, because at the end of the final stage of genocide, you also include a question mark. And, uh, you know, some contributors to the volume explicitly and implicitly question whether denial is a stage, let alone the final stage of genocide. Uh, some point out that denial was present in genocide prior to its perpetration, during its perpetration, and after the genocide ends uh, or is apprehended. Uh, this critique goes beyond pointing out that genocides uh, do not typically unfold in a linear manner, uh, something that Stanton also recognizes with his 10, ten stages of genocide. Um, but that, you know, denial is ever present. Um, meanwhile, in his chapter, which follows your introduction, Henry Thoreau challenges stage theory altogether. Uh, what are your thoughts on, on this debate? Um, but also this, you know, this question mark at the end of denial being the final stage of genocide question mark. And, and what are the implications for our field? <laughs> Man, that's a pretty big question. <laughs> um, well, I don't know if the implications are have to be like you know earth earth shattering or anything, you know, because uh, you know I can't speak for Henry. Well, I definitely can't speak for him because I don't have a Boston accent. <laughs> but even if I did. Um, I think, you know, his chapter is really, yeah, which challenges the stages theory, but his chapter is not really in a, you know, it's definitely not an attack on Gregory Stanton's eight stages and then t 10 stages of uh, genocide. But instead, he just is, you know, challenging us to reconsider the, the whole idea of stages. Because uh, Stanton himself, I mean, especially when he revised his um, stages into the 10 stages, I'll quote both of them right now. He says, uh, denial is the final stage, but it, it lasts throughout and always follows genocide. So it does last throughout the other stages, uh, which is one of the points that Henry was making. So I, I think that Henry, Henry T. wrote, uh, Sarah, help me out on pronouncing his name. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was good. <laughs> right. All right. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think that, well, again, I can't capture everything, the complete philosophical breadth and richness of Henry's chapter, but a lot of it had to do with challenging the idea of, of stages, but also of placing genocide denial within a much broader framework of denial of reality in general, you know. And uh, I'll just quote very qu quickly from his chapter, denial of reality has become the in italics, global political norm, and it's manifested in all sorts of ways from denial of climate change to even denial of the moon landings a half a century ago. So that was the main uh, 
I think a, 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 a you know a primary goal I think of Henry's chapter was to to put genocide denial into a much larger framework of denial of reality, right. you know, which is really important because, you know, actually now that I'm just kind of thinking aloud a little bit, but I mean, when we try to put uh, individual genocides into a comparative study of other genocides, well, you know, really we should put all that in the biggest frameworks we possibly can of, of, of world events and of world, you know, trends and so on. And so really genocide denial fits into a definite, I mean, it definitely, it, it thrives upon much deeper trends. Uh, Jeffrey Herf, the historian of Nazi Germany, he he's written about how, uh, for example, Trump's lot, uh, Trump's lies about, uh, the election and so on, that it fits into a much broader trend of, just undermining the truth and and also turning people again, even in, in this kind of right-wing populist fashion of inducing people to question the veracity of the so-called uh, liberal elites. <laughs> and if you think about it, even terms like liberal elites is an, is an inversion of reality. Because uh, liberals are not elites, really. <laughs> you know? I mean, some are, but <laughs> most of them aren't. I was going to say, speak for yourself, John. No, I'm yeah. kidding. <laughs> 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 uh, just kidding. Um, I don't want to cut you off, John. Can I add to that just about uh, Henry's chapter? Yeah. Okay. So I think one of – I love the way that Henry's able to combine – all of these philosophical ideas, you know, he brings in Baudrillard and critiques him, he brings in Foucault. Um, but I think Henry's proposing in his chapter this idea of consolidation. And he, that's sort of what got me thinking about the ways in which genocide transforms a culture that even if people deny genocide, the cultural transformation is manifest. It's, it's there in the material reality. And so he says that genocide is a transformation of the demographic, political, social, cultural, and economic orders, and that it is consolidated when the state of affairs that have resulted from the destructive phase become permanent and irrevocable. And so this, um, the emphasis on the legacies of genocide and, and how it perpetuates this intergenerational trauma or just it reshapes an entire society that's something that can't be denied because it is reality. Um, so I think Henry gives us a lot to think about in that chapter that's really important as we, you know, genocide scholars continue to, to pursue these topics. Thanks, John. Thanks, Sarah. Um, you know, my, my next question, I don't want to draw you into a, a debate that you're not actively engaged in uh, as the editors of the book. But I, I guess I, I was a little, you know, when I asked the question about the contentiousness, I, I guess I'm a little surprised. And maybe it's just that I'm not, you know, up on uh, sort of the evolving um, understandings in, in our field. But, uh, you know, Adam Jones, his paper, I assume, and then of course, the chapter is on crimes committed by the RPF in Rwanda, and in the uh, and in Eastern Congo. Um, and, you know, putting even the word genocide anywhere, I would, I, I guess I thought in a sentence between the RPF and then some, you know, the, the Hutu or, um, you know, refugees in, in, in Congo, um, I thought would be, I thought was still taboo, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Um, is, does that, that, that this was not contentious, does that mean that this is changing? I mean, I understand that people have been more willing to look at atrocities committed, but, uh, in the way that Adam does so, I thought would have been contentious, contentious. Um, and that of course leads to maybe a, a separate question. Um, but I, I was also thinking about, you know, scholarly censorship and, um, reputational attacks on someone who might put, you know, the term genocide next to, uh, a, a state or a perpetrator that, um, that people have strong feelings about, um, whether it's because they were previously a victims of genocide. Uh, so you mentioned Israel, Palestine, we can look at Rwanda. Um, is, is, is that a form of denial? Um, do you think reputational attacks based on, I guess, really the, 
employment of academic freedom to, you know, research what we research. Uh, Sorry, that was all muddled. Oh, no, that's all right. No, that's all right. Yeah, you ask, then you ask a lot of heavy questions all at once there, Jeff. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, which is good. <laughs> I like to keep my guests on their toes. You, you definitely do. I'm, I'm actually standing <laughs> up right now, seriously. <laughs> um, hey, I'll, I'll just say, you know, briefly on the Rwanda thing. I said, yeah, I thought Adam, I mean, I read the book by, by Juju. You know, rappers uh, very close, very closely. <laughs> in fact, I actually did a study that summer. Two, two summers ago, when the book came out, I engaged in like an intensive study of that book with a couple of students of mine. And um, I thought Adam did actually really sen- sensitive and nuanced job of of, uh, of dealing with that. So, I mean, essentially, I mean, the main question is, or the main issue is about uh, the RPF, the Rwandan Patriotic Front, led by Paul Kagame. What sorts of crimes did they commit? Not just since coming to power when they've, you know, and unfortunately they've established an authoritarian regime and Kagame is still president after 27 years, but also uh, before and during the genocide. Um, that is from like 1990 and uh, up to 94. And to what degree did they even uh, may, maybe perceive that it wasn't a bad thing for them if terrible things happened to Tutsi people because that could help them? Um, you know, in um, mobilizing more more people in support of their cause. So I guess that, uh, to me, I thought Adam did a very good job on that, just recognizing the complexity of history, you know, <laughs> the complexity of every single right. event. You know what? There, there's still some definition of genocide that hinge on things like the utter innocence of the victim group. But no, I'm happy to say that every victimized group in history has fought back. Um, this isn't exactly uh, to, to apply to Rwanda, but I've, I've written on Jewish resistance to Nazism. I'm very happy to say that Jews fought back in disproportionately large numbers, sometimes killed the hell out of a bunch of Nazis, which I think is just fine. If I'm yeah, well, I've got tenure, so I guess I can say that. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and so on, and so um, in other words, I mean, history is a great big mess, and there's no problem in acknowledging that. <laughs> so and so within the Rwandan genocide, if uh, April to July 1994, the fact is that the uh, the Tutsi-led forces of the RPF, the Rwandan Patriotic Front, they definitely committed uh, atrocities. But um, but they didn't organize a you know an, a centralized plan to try to wipe out the Hutu people, but they committed terrible crimes and they continued to afterwards. And unfortunately, now they after turning into a political party, they've established an authoritarian regime that just kind of benefits from their uh, their moral standing as the group that put an end to the genocide of '94. But you know what? That's one of the things that also kind of. Uh, that w- was an important factor in our book. Uh, really, kind of, oftentimes a cornerstone of genocide denial is the argument that, uh, well, that was very complicated. Yeah, of course it was complicated. And so that's what mm-hmm. I've heard when I write about Bosnia in the last couple of years. When I write and speak about Bosnia, I will often hear, "Well, that was so complicated. There were atrocities on all sides." I'm like, of course, there were atrocities on all sides. But there was a hell of a lot more atrocities on one side, and there was one drive toward like a creating a greater Serbia um, that led to that was the principal driver of war crimes, and that was a and that led to genocide. And so, you you you, you, you know uh, you know what I mean. So this this idea of that we have to um, somehow depict a victimized group as never having engaged in any violence or anything is absurd, really. It's morally and historically absurd to, to, you know, to just to fail to recognize that every historical episode has some moral nuance and complexity. Right. And I would say if you've ever seen Adam present or just met him, (laughs) he's, he's brilliant. And he also when he like at the you asked about the conference and was it contentious and i would say no but simply because of the way in which he makes his argument and a lot of it is 
him trying to unpack this messiness of history that John talked about and really raising questions. And he does that in his chapter. Um, and he, you know, on page 152 has this beautiful thing where, you know, is Rivers' use of genocide term appropriate for the RPF's role in Rwanda before, during, and following the 1994 genocide of Tutsis? A valid counterfactual question to pose is, is the in the absence of any Hutu killing of Tutsis during the genocide, would the RPF's actions be considered genocidal? So he he just sort of reframes questions, and he also has an airtight argument based on his extensive historical research. So it doesn't invite um, the sort of contention that a less nuanced, thoughtful argument might, which is one of the things that I think Adam does brilliantly. And I also think when it does come to the messiness and you know atrocities were committed on all sides and blah, 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 blah those, those two things are not mutually exclusive. You can have, okay, there was a genocide against the Tutsis and then Kagami's regime has also engaged in atrocious behaviors. It doesn't negate one or the other. Um, and so and it doesn't I think equate that that, them either, right? Right. Yeah. So I think it's an interesting chapter and a good debate that's going on in genocide studies right now. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you both. Uh, I'll just quickly note, um, you know, people who, if they look at my page on uh, New Books Network, they'll see, you know, I did interview Judy Reaver about her book and um, I don't know if either of you have any, any thoughts on what, you know, what I'm about to say. Um, but, uh, you know, I did not take from it that Judy is a genocide denier. Um, in fact, uh, it comes in the book that she explicitly recognizes the genocide. And I asked her that question during the interview. Um, but then I did receive some pushback um, from certain circles saying you know, that she is a denier and you know I shouldn't have given this platform. And uh, you know I was hoping to interview Linda Melbourne about intent to deceive, not necessarily as a response. I didn't, you know, I don't want to have like you know, um, competing podcast episodes, but to provide that other perspective, uh, unfortunately it didn't happen, but, um, you know, I, again, I, I would not give a platform to someone who's clearly a genocide denier. Um, and so, um, you know, when I read Adam's chapter, it made me feel a little bit better about that because, um, I mean, obviously, you know, not to make it about me, um, but just that, um, I wasn't the only one who didn't see that. Do you, do you have any thoughts on yeah. that? Hey, yeah. Hey man. Hey Jeff, I'll just say if anyone just really reads that book and looks at the uh, footnotes and everything else, it cannot be just dismissed. <laughs> I mean, it really can be. And, and she is not a genocide uh, denier. And that's actually clear, clear in the book it's, uh, itself that she's not denying mm-hmm. the genocide of Tootsie people. So um, yeah, that's all I'll say, because I don't want to end up on the list <laughs> from a guy whose portrait is like the portrait of Ataturk in Istanbul. But I mean, no, it's, I think there's just simply no question that the genocide of 94 was against the Tutsi people. I also think it's silly, by the way, when... Um, there's a lot of shorthand words people use. I know it's on NPR. People will say certain things uh, uh, as a matter of style or something. But like uh, anyway, so people say you know Tootsies and moderate Hutus, just as a matter of rote or whatever. So yeah, Tootsies and just Hutus. You know, there were Hutus who were uh, just didn't go along with the program of genocide, and who, who and or who, who were married to a Tootsie, uh, and so on. But the very large majority, 80 to 90 percent of the victims of the genocide were Tutsi people. There's no question about that. And then at the same time, there's no question that the RPF has committed crime, committed crimes then and and during the war the, and afterwards. OK, but that doesn't negate the fact that there was only, there was one genocide, which was the genocide against the Tutsi people. You know what? In the in the Yugoslav wars. Well, especially you know, Croatian forces, frankly, but also sometimes Bosnian forces committed atrocities. But there was one genocide, which was the well-orchestrated, really conscious genocide carried out against Bosnian Muslim peoples, and that largely succeeded. I'm sorry to say, you can drive through Eastern Bosnia now, places that were once 95% Bosniak are now 95% Serbian, and so on. Um, 
And so again, I just think we should be able to recognize the, the messiness and the new moral complexity of, uh, of, of history. Thanks, John. I agree. Uh, Sir, did you want to add anything? No, I would. I mean, okay, yes. I would just say <laughs> anytime, anytime you open a discussion and dialogue, it's important. And I think that's one of the things that your podcast does. So raising questions and opening up a dialogue should be opportunity for people to listen and try to understand different points of view, right? And so anytime you have this sort of pushback, often I think it comes from people who are already on edge, like already looking for something. Um, and so I imagine that's, that's the case. <clears throat> but I, I'm interested too in your question about, um, I guess it's almost part of like cancel culture where you talk about your academic reputation and whether or not, you know, people criticize you. And again, I think Adam handles that really well. He quotes from people who have criticized him in his own chapter and directly addresses it. Um, and I think that it's dangerous to the extent that if we instill fear in people from actually raising questions when things are so complex and messy, and try to shut down that discourse instead of opening it up for inquiry, I think we're doing a disservice. Agreed. Thank you, Sarah. Um, and yeah, I definitely, um, I'm going to do a quick <laughs> self-promotion of, of the podcast. I, I, I do try to, um, you know, cover things in the, with the interviews and, and the books that I read that maybe aren't getting, uh, you know, the same attention, whether it's Argentina uh, Guatemala, uh, Libya, um, you know, back in the, in the thirties and, and so on and so forth. Um, cause I think it's really important to, um, draw attention to some of these, these issues in these cases that maybe are underrepresented. Uh, so yeah, thank you. And thank you for your volume that does the same. And, um, hey, also, you know, Jeff, um, yeah, thank yeah, you for yeah. saying about Libya in the thirties and Ethiopia, cause no one knows about the, well, People in North Africa and Eastern Africa know about it, but no one else knows about it. Yeah, thanks, John. And um, so I, I looks like we're already a little over an hour. So I, I want to ask you each one final question before we we let you go. And uh, John, for you, well, maybe it's two questions in one for each of you. But John, I know um, you know Adam's been brought up a, a number of times, but John is an avid photographer. I'm sorry, Adam is an avid photographer. Uh, and I saw that a couple of your photos are included in the chapter. And uh, so my first question is, is photography a hobby of yours? Is it, or is it something you picked up to sort of document uh, your travels and the research you're doing? And then, and then the second question is, uh, you mentioned your book, To Kill People. Uh, I know you mentioned that you're working on a new edition. Uh, so I don't know if you want to talk about that for a little and anything else you might be working on. Yeah, sure. No, I'll just say, yeah, quickly. Uh, yeah, no, I'm not a great photographer. I, uh, Adam Jones is a much better photographer, but now I kind of benefited from the fact that iPhones have a decent camera, and I took some good photos when I was in Bosnia two years ago. Uh, yeah, they did turn up. Yeah, we put them in, in, in Hick, Hickman Cartridge's chapter. And uh, yeah, right now I'm putting out a second edition of um, To Kill a People, Genocide. I guess I'll have to change the subtitle. Uh, genocide in the 20th and 21st centuries, and I'm adding a chapter on Bosnia to that. And that those are really the main things I'm working on. I've been attempting over the years to compose a large, comprehensive uh, history of anti-Nazi resistance throughout Europe. But that's a big project. <laughs> but that's something I'm working on. I'm going to publish it on the day that I retire, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, John and Sarah. Can you uh, tell our listeners tell our listeners about how uh, and where children's literature intersects? With, you got into this a little, little bit earlier, but where it intersects with war and genocide, and then also anything uh, that you're working on right now? Sure, thank you. It's a very niche area. I will say, I always dread the question: What do you teach? <laughs> well, <laughs> war and genocide in children's and young adult literature. Um, <laughs> And so there has been a proliferation of books intended for young audiences that directly broach subjects of war and genocide. Um, the Diary of a Young Girl was one of the originals that was translated into English, but in the past 10 years, 
there's been even more. And so there are authors who really do this well, like um, Jane Yolen, uh, Judith Kerr, Adam, uh, Alan Gratz. And so a lot of the work that I do is looking at, it's not a debate about whether or not this literature should exist, but it's since it does exist, what are the criteria that we use to evaluate it? What are some of the things that we should definitely be looking for, such as historical accuracy? And then, but also how do authors and illustrators balance um, the educational component with the need to sort of distance young readers from all of the associated graphic violence or, or trauma that comes with these narratives? So we spend a lot of time exploring that in my classes. Um, and I really enjoy it. The majority of my students, uh, I'm teaching a grad seminar this semester, and the majority of the students are going to be teachers. And so really helping them think through how to broach these materials and how to teach them in a classroom with young people and which ones are effective and which ones are slightly problematic for whatever reason. Um, so right now I'm working on a book on war and genocide in children's and young adult literature that's targeting like how to integrate it into the K through 12 sector. Um, I'm hoping that that will be out next year. Um, but I really enjoy working with teachers and helping them see the practical applications of how to use these books in, in the classroom. So, yeah, that's my big project at the moment. This all sounds great and, and such important work. Thank you to both of you for, for all you do and for, for joining me today. Uh, I really appreciate this. And, uh, and and take care. Uh, I'm sure we'll be in touch. Uh, I'm sure we could keep going if we wanted to. But uh, thanks again to both of you. And uh, yeah, take care. Yeah. Thank, Thank you so much. Thank Jeff. you, Jeff.